Today, we continue in our series in uh, Genesis. We're turning to Genesis chapter 35, and we'll be bringing closure today to Jacob's story. And I'm going to read to us for um, the first four verses of chapter 35 of Genesis. It says this, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Lord is calling uh, Jacob to return to Bethel where he had anointed the stone that he slept on. So let's review the story. A few weeks ago, we read and studied chapter 28 of Genesis where uh, Jacob was fleeing Esau and fleeing his father's home uh, because Esau wanted to kill him after he had tricked him out of his birthright, or excuse me, out of the blessing. And he was out in the wilderness and needed to stop and camp for the night, and he had nothing. So he slept on a stone, and he received a dream, a revelation from God, right? And uh, there were angels ascending and descending from heaven. And when he woke up, he said, this place, surely I was in the house of God and did not know it. He called the place Bethel, uh, which means chapel or holy place. And he took the stone that he had slept on, and he anointed it with oil, and then he made a vow to God, if you might remember, and God had come to him in the dream with an unconditional blessing. It was the same blessing that Abraham had received, and it basically was saying, through you, I will bless even all the peoples of the world, it said. And then Jacob responded with a conditional blessing, you might remember, saying, if you will be my God, and if you will provide clothing for me, and if you will provide food and shelter for me, and if you will take me back to my people someday, then, then you will be my God. So the Lord unconditionally blessed Jacob. Jacob conditionally responded and said, if you do these things for me, then you'll be my God. And he named that place Bethel. And if you remember, we kind of talked about the story and how funny it was in a way that he took this little rock and created this little altar and said, act now, God, and you can have this little place as your home, right? This, this little rock can be your dwelling place. So uh, now we remember that Rachel, uh, you may remember it from, from the story of Jacob, that Rachel had stolen the household gods from, Ab- uh, from, from her own father, from Laban. And in the ancient Near East, there were as many gods as there were needs for people. A god for fertility, a god for the harvest, a god for war, and a god for romance. They were like little figurines or or statues, and some were much larger. But they would literally bow to these icons or to these idols and worship. And Jacob is calling his people to clean their spiritual house, so to speak, before returning to Bethel by calling them to put away the foreign gods that are among you. 
And it's interesting how God is sort of closing the loop on, on Jacob's life. He started out alone in Bethel saying, I'm going to make this altar for you. And if you do these things for me, then you'll be my God. And now God is saying, I was faithful. And I want you to return to Bethel. And I want you to remember my faithfulness. And I want you to listen to the way Jacob now describes his relationship with God. Because it's beautiful. He says, we are returning to Bethel so that I may build an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. How beautiful is that? He doesn't say, let's try to appease God through building an altar. Maybe if we go back to Bethel and do these things, then we'll get the blessing. That was the old Jacob. Jacob is no longer wrestling anybody, especially God, for a blessing. He is now resting in the blessing that God has given him. No more fighting, no more scrapping, no more wrestling. He's resting and trusting. And what I love that he's doing is he is comparing these false gods, if you will. They're false because they're not real. (laughs) There's one God who's created all things And everything else is a creature or is a creation, part of the creation, and not God himself. And yet they're bound to these false gods. And I love that Jacob is comparing, in a sense, these false idols to God by saying, this is the God who has always been with me and met me in my greatest need. Now, what happens also next is this. Jacob says, I want you to give me all of these household items and I will hide them. And the great Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says that the word hid should be translated as bury. But not like burying uh, treasure that you're going to dig up later, like burying a dead body that you have no intent of ever bringing up again. In First Chronicles 16, it says this, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So today, we're going to talk about idolatry. And not the kind of idolatry that is literal. We're talking, uh, we're talking in more symbolic way of the idols of our hearts. And, and the things and ways in which we look to other things other than God to be gods to us. So how do you bury idols figuratively? Well, first, you have to admit that you have them. And you might be thinking one of these three, three things. You might say, this doesn't pertain to me because I don't worship any images. I don't worship any little, little figurines or some icon. And so that would be the literalist approach and say, I literally don't have any physical idols. And, and obviously, that's the literalist approach. You might say, this doesn't pertain to me because I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic and I don't believe in any God. Or you might say, this doesn't pertain to me because I'm a Christian. And I worship the living God, so how could I have idols? And today, I, I got to say, the bulk of my, my sermon today is coming uh, from, through the help of this great book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And I want to read part of the preface in the book where he says this, what is an idol? It, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God 
Is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living? Idolatry. And so you see that idolatry isn't just when we make a little figurine and and bow down to it, a literal idol. Idolatry is anything we look to as God that, that only God can give you. John Calvin famously wrote, in his book, uh, The Institutes for the Christian Religion, he said, the, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're always building new things to worship other than the living God. And if you tear one down, there's a tendency in which our hearts will just raise up another. Just because you may not bow to God, you're bowing to something, even if you don't believe in God, even if you're an atheist, even if you're agnostic. You may not worship a deity, but what you are worshiping ultimately is yourself because our hearts were made for worship and our hearts can't help but worship. You look to success, romance, power, control, money, or pleasure to fill your heart, to get a blessing. This is what the human heart does, regardless of who you are. You look to these things to fill you up and for you to be able to finally say, I have arrived, I've achieved it, I've finally, I've got the blessing. Ultimately, in a way, you're like Jacob, even if you're a total unbeliever. You're looking for a blessing, something to fulfill your heart. Madonna is famous for saying this, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me because even though I've, I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I suppose it never will. I mean, at the, at the height of her career, you have to admit, whether you like her music or not, that Madonna had arrived from, from a world's perspective in terms of success. She was somebody, and yet she never, ever got to the place that she could just rest in the blessing that she had accomplished anything. She could never actualize it, own it, and say, I did it, I achieved it, it's done. I can now rest in shalom. It's never enough. You may say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I worship the one true God, so how could I have idols? But, and to be a Christian is to believe the gospel, but to be really resting in the gospel will free you up to actually be able to look at your own heart in such a way to realize that while Jesus is my Savior and Lord, I am still tempted by so many other functional saviors and Lord. And it really takes the gospel blessing to give you the freedom to examine your heart in that kind of depth to be willing to admit it. Because up to that point, we're usually so defensive, we would just say, I could never, no, I'll fight you tooth and nail. No, I could never admit that I'm an idolater. But the reality is, all of us are. We are all tempted by other things. Tim Keller says, this can occur when people rely on the rightness even of their own doctrine or, or religious belief for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It's a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you've slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. And this is a sign 
that people are not seeing themselves as sinners saved by grace. Instead, their trust is in the rightness of their views that makes them feel superior. Listen, study of scripture, theology, doctrine is very important. I've committed my entire life to it. It's so important. It's so critical. But the subtle shift is like this. We believe that the Bible is our final authority but the problem is that is when people slip into believing that your interpretation of Scripture is also a final authority. You have to bring some humiliation, not humiliation, some humility to yourself to say, I maybe have not interpreted everything perfectly and rightly, and I need to open up my heart to the reality that, uh, that I may not have figured it all out. On the, on the essence, of course, Jesus is Lord. The Bible is God's final authority. But there ought to be some humility. Otherwise, we turn even to our brothers and sisters in scoffing, right? And, and, and especially towards other people in the world. And we can slip into the sin of the Pharisee where we scoff and, and beat our chest and say, thank God I'm not a sinner like them. And when you get to that place like the Pharisee, what you've done is you begin to build your life and works righteousness instead of the the righteousness of Christ. And believe it or not, even your own doctrine can become a form of idolatry if you're not careful. How do you view others? Are your sins somehow different from theirs? Well, yes, I'm a sinner, but not like them. Jacob has been learning to live his life in line with the gospel. And it's been beautiful to see. Jacob realizes now, finally, after all of his striving, all of his conniving, all of his grasping, uh, considering how great God is, Jacob is saying, we have to get rid of these idols. We're going to bury them. So the question isn't, do you have idols in your life? It's more, what do you do about it? How do you bury idols? I, I really believe one of the first things is just opening up your own heart to say, I have idols, and, I, and what are they? Next is to identify them. Admit them and identify them. How to identify idols? First of all, th- this is from Keller's book. What do you dream about? What do you daydream about? You're wondering, what, what, I wonder what kind of idol I'm tempted by. What do you daydream about? When you have nothing else to do, where does your mind go? Do you think about that dream house, a career advancement, an illicit fantasy? Is there some common theme? Is there a place that your mind almost always goes? You might be, you might be on to something. How do you spend your money? Certainly not everything we spend money on, you know, toothpaste and diapers. This is not a, an indicator of your idolatry probably, but the truth is Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? So we spend money on what or who we love. There is nothing inherently wrong with money or things, but proportionally where your money goes is an indicator of what you value most, who or what you worship. Three, how do you respond to unanswered, unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? And this is so hard. But there's a truth there. And I have to admit, as I was looking at this list, this is the one that hurts the most, but there's a truth in it, and it's this. 
when we pray for things that go unanswered or not the way that we would want, especially as it relates to something as good as a, the health of somebody we love. I, I recently have found out that my, my stepsister has lymphoma, and we grew up together. She's my age. She has lymphoma, and it's back, and I would plead with you, please pray for her. Um, she finds out this week whether the, the chemotherapy is helping or not. She'll find out on Monday. But being a pastor, one of the beauties of being a pastor is you get to see people expressing their faith when the challenge is the greatest. And she's been reflecting back to me how strongly the Lord has been meeting her in this moment. And she's been saying things to me like, I have so much peace, even though I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I have peace that God is with me and I will be at peace no matter what the news is. I'm not there right now. I'm saying, Lord, just heal her. And she, though, has a peace that surpasses understanding. She has two young boys. Please pray for, for her and for me. It says this, look, your idols at the bottom, or excuse me, um, when you want something and you pray about it uh, and you hope for it, it and it doesn't come to, to pass, our response is often an indicator of what our idols might be. And that's so hard. Fourthly, uh, what do your uncontrollable emotions tell you? Tim Keller writes this, look for idols at the bottom of your most painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and they drive you to do things that you know are wrong. If you're angry, you have to ask yourself, is there something here that's too important to me, something I have to have at all costs? Am I so scared because something in my life is being threatened that I think it is a necessity when it is not a necessity? How do you bury idols? You have to admit it. That may be, that, that's the beginning. To get to a place where you admit that you struggle with idolatry. Second, identify them. And third, this is the most important, but it's the most complex. It is to replace them. But this is complex, and I'll get into it in a minute as to why it's hard and complex. I've been walking with a good, a very close person in my life that's been struggling with a breakup. He's in love, and the relationship's not working out, and, and they're, they're breaking up, and he can't get past it. And I keep thinking to myself, he's not going to get past it until uh, he finds another love, right? Another girlfriend. Hopefully a wife someday. When I was in college, I had a hard time of letting go of a relationship after we broke up. And in many ways, this relationship had become an idol for me. Uh, we were almost engaged, uh, and I was just heartbroken over it, and I felt vulnerable because I was 22 years old. I was going so bald at the time that I already looked 35 years old, and I felt like, man, there's just not much hope from a, from a worldly perspective, like time is ticking, okay? <laughs> I felt like I had to control this relationship. I thought it was my shot, my one shot. You only get one shot. And so I couldn't figure out how to move on. I just couldn't, I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Finally, a friend pulled me aside and he said, first of all, man, of course, you need to trust the Lord. Like, you've got to trust God. God is the one who's in charge of providing for you, not your hair, lack thereof. But he also said, you need to find a mature woman who won't play emotional games like this 
you need to replace this love with a greater love. He was bold. He, he even went on to use his girlfriend as an example of a better type of love. He said, you know, my girlfriend, she would never pull a thing like this. You need to find someone like her. And that helped me. It helped me a lot. It, it helped me so much I married his girlfriend. <laughs> a long time later, after they broke up. But, but it helped. It helped a lot. And I was like, that's good advice, man. That was good. <laughs> now... I write a lot of humorous illustrations. They don't usually land as well as that one. I'm glad, I'm glad it did. But I hesitated to do it because I thought you'd laugh like that and you'd forget the main point of what I'm trying to say. And here's the main point of what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's not enough to replace one idolatrous relationship with another idolatrous relationship. You have to replace it with a greater love and Jesus is the greater love. You can't just bury an idol. You have to plant Jesus in your heart. You have to get Jesus rooted in your heart. He has to become preeminent. He has, we have to, and this is the nuance. This is why it's the hardest thing. Because oftentimes the thing that we love the most or that we're elevating to an idolatrous status, it's a good thing that you're making an ultimate thing. God created love and romance and marriage. It's beautiful. It's a gift from God. But if it becomes an ultimate th thing, it can crush you. And, and it's not enough. It'll never be enough. You can't just say, well, this thing I love is really bad and I'm going to stop loving it. Or I'm just going to be a better person. Or I'm going to be a good person. It's what Thomas Chalmers is famous for saying. It's an old sermon. It's really old. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. There really is something to like, you're not going to get over one relationship until you find a better love and move on. But ultimately, in an ultimate, ultimate, ultimate sense, that love has to be Jesus Christ. He must become greater and greater and greater in our heart's affections. So on the one hand, you need to identify your idols. You need to repent of it. You need to turn from it. You need to bury it. But even more so, you need to see that Jesus is better than everything else you're tempted by. And so I love what Jacob is doing. This is what Jacob is doing. He's comparing the true God to these other false gods. He says, God answered me in the day of my distress. And he's basically saying to his little group, you know, as you pull out your earrings that were dedicated to idols, and it's not saying that, you know, jewelry's bad. That's not what it's saying. And as they gathered their household idol, idols to bury them, what he's saying is, have these idols helped you in your day of distress? And so basically, I want to ask you the same question. Have they? Has your pursuit of the perfect body rescued you in the day of distress? No way. Has your pursuit of romantic love, has your pursuit of money, power, pleasure, maybe for a little bit, but not ultimately? What about your pursuit of security, retirement account, a good job, a good school, living right? Again, these things are good things. They're great things, and they may help a little bit, but they're too thin to help in an ultimate way. They, they can't. They'll they'll crack or break under the weight of your life's expectations. 
We need to come to the place where we're really truly resting in the gospel and believing that the gospel is true for us to be released, to be authentic and real, to face the fact that we all struggle with idols. And if you're striving to earn God's blessing, you'll never be able to admit it. You'll just be defensive, have your wall up and say, I have no idols. And you'll be stuck in idolatry. But you already have the blessing. Jacob had the blessing, and he had to get to the place where he rested in the blessing. In Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, you have the blessing of God. Now rest in it and begin to journey like Jacob and bear your idols. I'm really blessed to have had three sons go to Covenant College, two of which are still there. And there's a great professor there named Kelly Capick who's written a ton of good books He's recently written a book about finitude, meaning we're finite, we're not God, we're creatures, we're not the creator, and that's a good thing, and we ought to just be at peace in our humanity. Because humanity has limitations, but because of technology, we think we can do everything at all times, and it's only going to get weirder and worse with AI. And so we've got to come to peace that we're just creatures. We have a, a day of our birth, and we have a day of our death. And it may come at a time when it surprises you, like our brother this week. And I I heard a great podcast where Kelly Capick was being interviewed about his new book. And he said something that really related to us today. He said this, God doesn't hate you. He loves you. But God does hate the sin that is distorting the good creature he made. And so sometimes you read about God's hatred for sin and you, you receive that as God hates me because you know you're a sinner. But that's not true. God does not hate you, but he hates sin because sin, Capic says, distorts the good creature that God made. He loves you enough to want to disentangle you from the sin that is distorting and disordering you. And that's what idolatry does. It disorders our loves. Jesus gives peace, brothers and sisters, where idols bring shame. Jesus brings hope where idols bring failure. Jesus brings contentment where idols bring empty promises. Jesus brings forgiveness where idols can only bring guilt. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we we thank you that there is blessing in you in the gospel, that you have blessed us, and that blessing is ours through the work of your Son. And, Lord, in Christ, you have forgiven us. You have loved us. You are redeeming us. And I just pray, oh, Lord, over all of us in this room today that we would learn to rest in that blessing and to even be so free in who we are that like Jacob, we can face the fact that there are idols in our house and we need to get rid of them. They need to be buried and we'll be tempted to to dig them back up, but oh Lord, help us to see that you're so much better. You're so much better than all the other things that we bow to, all the other empty promises we look to. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.